Well, I'm going to begin with a few questions for us this morning. Why would you say that so many Christians have boring, dried-up spiritual lives? Why would you argue that the American church has so much lukewarm, consumer-oriented churchianity rather than a white-hot passion for the Savior? Why is it that many Christians, many of us, live with a low-grade anger and disappointment toward God rather than a grateful heart towards God for all that He's done for us? Or why is it that in worship, which is probably the best human picture, well, marital sex is probably the best human picture of the sort of intimacy and tenderness that God longs for us to have in worship. Why is it that in worship so many Christians have blank faces and, and empty hearts? You know, there's probably a number of things that we could say, but part of the answer is found in our passage today in the very strong, clear command to remember who we were and what Christ has done for us. We're going to see this as Paul unpacks this, what this is all about. Now, it's been a month for us since we've been in the book of Ephesians with the Christmas holidays. So let me remind you that in the Roman Empire, the first century, the time of Christ, there were four great cities, Rome, of course, Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch in modern-day, uh, well, it's in modern-day Syria, modern-day Turkey, a great city, and then Ephesus, the city that this book was written to. Ephesus was this great and, and mighty city. It was a commercial center, a trade center, and it was a religion center with all kind of uh, religious idolatry. Paul was in this city longer than any other city, three years, and so naturally this would be a, a city especially dear to his heart. It's about 10 years later after leaving Ephesus that he writes this letter, shares his heart with these people that he had loved. There are three movements in the passage so far that we have seen in verses 3 through 14 after the two-verse introduction. He talks about all the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, our identity, who we are in Christ. And then in 15 through 23 is one of his great prayers, praying that we would know Christ personally and all of these riches and blessings in Christ. And then in 2, 1 through 10, he talks about this incredible transformation out of debt into life by the grace of God. One of the great passages in the Bible on the grace of God. Now, the letter of Ephesians, along with Romans, are considered Paul's greatest letters. Some folks say this, is, this letter is unsurpassed, and, and it is so rich. Now, in light of, of all that he's, he's, he's written so far, especially 1 through 10, you've been rescued from spiritual death to life in Christ, he begins our passage with the word, therefore. And whenever you see the conjunction, therefore, in the Bible, just, you know, what's the therefore, therefore? And it's in light of all that he's done for us. So if you'd stand with me now, we're going to read our passage today, beginning in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Short, simple, but packed passage. Verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
This is God's holy word. Please be seated. All righty. Therefore, in light of the great transformation, therefore, remember, remember. And this is a clear, strong command from God that we should actually uh, call to mind, remember from the heart, let it grip us who we once were before Christ or outside of Christ. Remember, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. This is not, you know, this is a good idea, but, you know, you need to do this. Now, uh, so many of us seldom think back and remember. Maybe we think we've been Christians all of our lives, and we, we forget what it was like to be outside of Christ before Christ rescued us. Now, do you remember what it means to have no peace and assurance about your eternal destiny and about forgiveness of sins? Do you remember what, it, what it's like to have no real sense of purpose about what life is all about? Do you remember what it's like to be living for nothing bigger than the American dream, accumulating more and more stuff, filling your life with recreational activities, and trying to uh, prove that you're somebody? Do you remember what that's like and the emptiness that is inherent in it? Do you remember what it was like to have no experience of what it means to feel so loved by the God who made you? Do you remember what it's like to have, as you face eternity, to have no hope in the face of death, but you're facing a vast, empty cosmos all alone? Now, do you remember those sort of things? Many of you would say, well, Jeff, I became a Christian when I was five years old. I don't remember those at all, and I understand that, but Paul's point applies to every single one of us. If you don't remember your own situation, you know from the Scripture what it is like to be outside of Christ, Christ, the lostness, the bankruptcy, the emptiness. And so you can think of and remember those things. Now, we've got a top five. I encourage you to um, ask God to give you five people who don't yet know Him. Remember what it felt like. When you think of your neighbors, maybe you've got, a, say, a retired neighbor from, you know, worked at Exxon, doing great and prosperous and you know, just seems to everything be going fine. Remember, if he doesn't know Christ, if she doesn't know Christ, the emptiness, the lostness, the uh, complete spiritual bankruptcy outside Jesus Christ. Don't forget. Never forget. So Paul begins right off the bat. Remember, remember, remember. Now, in communion, each week we celebrate communion as a church. It's all about remember. In fact, when Jesus gave the disciples the command about communion, he said, do this, that is, take the bread in remembrance of me. And then he turns right around with the cup and says, do this in remembrance of me. So the one central command about communion is not to follow some sort of liturgy or formula, but to remember Jesus and implicitly remember what he did in rescuing you from lostness to life, from your spiritual state. So we remember now, let's unpack it a bit. Now, a little bit later on, we're going to talk about, well, how can we remember better? Uh, because most of us don't do that very well. How can we actually call to mind on a regular basis? But first of all, let's unpack what he says. He says specifically in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, We've got a little bit of a cultural barrier because we don't live in that world where around Israel in the Middle East where everything was circumcision was so crucial. Um, but, but, but for the Jewish people 
who for centuries upon centuries, millennia upon millennia, saw themselves rightly as the chosen people of God. Ever since Abraham, and God said, I'm going to create a special nation chosen by God, not because they were so great, but just because of my love for them. Ever since Abraham, they were God's special people. And God gave Abraham and every Jewish boy since then a simple symbol that you're my people. And it was an unusual symbol. It was on the eighth day for the infant boy circumcised them. Now, is that not an odd symbol of your faith? I mean, it's something only for little boys, not little girls, and it's completely, you know, hidden unless somebody's running around naked. And so it's kind of an odd symbol. Now, we could talk about some reasons why, but that's another time. Now, we've got a symbol as Christ followers, don't we? And it's not circumcision, it's baptism. It's baptism. What the Bible teaches, what we see modeled throughout the New Testament, is every believer is baptized as a symbol, as an outward symbol that you can see that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You're identified with Him, uh, buried with Him, raised with Him, that you, are, that you belong to Christ, you are in Christ. Now, but, but, but these Gentiles, because this was not in Israel, this was in the Roman Empire. Asia, Asia Minor was the province, modern-day Turkey, Ephesus. Gentiles, non-Jews. And he said, remember that you Gentiles who were called the uncircumcision, derisively called by the circumcision. They were so proud of the fact that they were God's people. But that's just made with human hands. Remember who you once were. Now, he, he elaborates this in verse 12 on who they were with five things. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That could be summarized by saying, remember that you were Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless, godless. You're in a bad state. Now, a, a, a few weeks ago when we were in Ephesians 2, 1, we had another version to remember who we were outside of Christ. The very first verses of the chapter. Notice how strong this is. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the rest of mankind. I mean, that is our spiritual state outside of Christ. And he's reminding us now, kind of another summary, that you were Christless, homeless, friendless, Hopeless, godless. He, first of all, talks about you're separated from Christ. That's the basic problem because outside Christ, you have nothing. He's our only Savior. Every good thing that God gives us is through Christ and in Christ. He's the one who died for us to, to bring us back to God. You, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and he's simply here talking about they were the people of God, and you were alienated. You weren't part of the people of God. You weren't the chosen people. And it's not really talking about the physical Israel it's the, as much as the spiritual Israel, people who did not necessarily have the physical lineage of Abraham but had the spiritual faith of Abraham. You were alienated. You weren't part of that. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, we know about covenants in the Bible this is where God says, I will be your God and you'll be my people. Now, that's different than a contract. A contract is sort of a business legal affair. You know, you have a business arrangement, you get a contract. But if you get married, you don't have a contract. I hope you don't. You have a, a covenant in which you promise to love 
and, and honor and be faithful. And God with us, repeatedly in the Bible, way back from Abraham, Noah, and, and way back, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm your king, you will obey me, you will follow me. I will be a God to you. I will be your God. So they were strangers to that, complete strangers. Fourth, they had, have, had no hope. And in the Roman Empire, we have many examples of epitaphs that express the despair of the common Roman citizen as he faced death or as she faced death. They had no hope. And we've got to remember today that people without Christ have no real hope, whatever they try to convince themselves. They, they just had no hope. And then finally, they were without God. They were completely separated from God and all good and all life in the universe. So the plight of man outside of Christ. Now, friends, that, that is true of every single person around us who does not know the Savior. And that spiritual emptiness, we ought to recognize it, how it comes out and how it's manifested. People don't walk around with a sign saying, you know, I'm, I'm spiritually empty and lost. But, but notice how it comes out. Notice how it comes out in the rampant alcoholism and other chemical addictions. Notice how it comes out in materialism and, and, and trying to accumulate more things to, to, to satisfy the soul. Notice how it comes out in addiction to pornography and other sexual sins. It comes out in the endless pursuit of fun, recreation, of workaholism, trying to prove you're somebody with obsession and preoccupation with your body or with some hobby. All of these ways and many others, this emptiness comes out and it doesn't work. It never fills the human soul because God made you in His image and you've got this Christ-shaped hole in your human heart that only Christ can fill. It's like Augustine said. He was a great philosopher in the early church, and he looked in vain for meaning and philosophy, and finally humbly comes to Christ. And he later prayed this. He says, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Do you remember that? I remember that. Our hearts are restless. And that's true of every single one who does not yet know Christ. Now, uh, that's our spiritual state outside of Christ. That's who we once were. That's who people are around us. And then in verse 13, we see this enormous sea change when, when, when Paul writes, but now, that's then, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, that is one of the great summaries, succinct summaries of the gospel in the New Testament. You who once were far off, far off from God in life, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. If there is a, a motif in the Old Testament, kind of a, 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 a unifying theme, we could say it's distance. Because in the Old Testament, there was such emphasis on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man that we could not come into God's presence or people could not come into God's presence in the Old Testament unless they split the throat of a lamb or a goat or a bull and blood was shed to represent the fact death had to happen before you, a sinner, came into the presence of a holy God. And when they built the tabernacle and later the temple, there was a holy place, but nobody could go in there except some priests. And beyond a thick curtain, there was a most holy place, and no one except one high priest once a year could go in there. And all of that said, you are distant from the holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And it emphasized that we are sinful, 
And God is holy. Thousands upon thousands of bloody sacrifices did that. But when God stepped out of eternity and onto this planet as a baby, he grew up. And at the culmination of his life, the goal of his life was when he was crucified on a cross and he paid for sin for the first time ever, sin could be really paid for. And at that moment, the curtain in the temple, not a mile or so away, was ripped in two from top to bottom because God ripped it in two and said, the way into, the, into my presence is thrown wide open. And friends, that is such good news that the holy God forgives our sins and we can now be near him. We who are far are now family, close. Now, oftentimes when I am working, I am uh, in my office, door closed. Glenna, my assistant, is, is outside. And people don't just kind of walk in and back there. I, I kind of hibernate away and, and study and do some other things. From time to time, people come in and they run it by Glenna or they knock on the door or something like that. However, if one of my four grandkids want to come in, they don't have to knock. They don't have to check with Glenna. It's just come right on in. If the door opens and it's not, uh, nobody knocked or give me kind of heads up, and it's one of my grandkids, how do you think I respond? I smile. I smile inside and I smile, I smile outside. I am glad to see them. I don't care what's going on. I am glad to see them. Do you know that the holy God of the Old Testament that we talked about feels exactly that way about you whenever you call out to him. Whenever you come into his presence, he smiles. Because you are his much-loved, blood-bought, adopted son or daughter. You who were once far have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You've got access. You've got 24-7 access. Not to the U.S. president, not to the CEO of ExxonMobil, but to the God of the universe. You are near, and if there's a motif in the New Testament, it would be the nearness of God through Jesus Christ, if we are in Christ. It's a great thing. Now, there are two key phrases here in this verse, this simple little verse about Christ. Notice, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, in Christ, through the blood of Christ. In Christ, that is, when you trust Christ as your Savior, He comes inside you. He's in you. You're in Him. You're connected to Him. You're united to Him. Baptism is a symbol of that as you're kind of surrounded by the water, surrounded by Christ. You're in Christ. Every good thing that God has for you is in Christ, nothing apart from Christ. But not only is it in Christ, it's through the blood of Christ because something had to happen, had to happen in history. Jesus died for your sins. And he died on the cross for your sins and your place as your substitute. Now, just let me think with you about that. Substitute. We, know, we knew substitutes since the first grade. Because if our teacher got sick, another teacher would show up and we would call her the, the what? Substitute. She was the substitute teacher. If you're watching the NFL football game, and the quarterback gets hurt, has a concussion, and he goes out, and somebody else comes in. He's the substitute quarterback. We know the concept of substitute. Well, do you know that at the very heart of the universe, the, the most deepest spiritual core of the universe is this idea of substitution? Here it is. 
Those lambs, those goats, those bulls in the Old Testament, they were temporary substitutes. Something had to die if you're going to approach God, the holy God, to pay for sin. And they substituted for us. But they couldn't really take the place of our sin. They were just animals. But they were all based on the fact that one day God would show up as the Lamb of God and allow himself to be crucified to pay for our sins as our substitute, as our substitute. Romans 5.8 is one of innumerable passages that speak to it in some way. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us as our substitute in our place. That's what happened. He died. He, we come to, to God through the blood of Christ. John Stott puts the idea of substitution this way when he says that the essence of sin is that we human beings submit the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. Now, what he means by that is that outside of Christ, for Christ, we basically play God. We act like God. We're self-dependent. We're self-reliant. We think life's all about us. We play God. So with that note, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be substitution. He dies for us. We can come to God through the blood of Christ. Now, you know, when the Bible says blood, um, that's really a a brief little metaphor. It's not actually the blood itself. It's the death of Christ. It's the blood that is shed. Just like when we talk so much about the cross, that's a metaphor for the death of Christ. There's nothing about the wooden splinters in there that have any power, but it's a metaphor. That's where Christ died for us. The whole thing is death. He dies for our sin because sin had to be paid for. Martin Luther talked about the blood of Christ, which is the metaphor used so often in the Bible. And he said, one drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. And that's how people of faith see it. This is the most precious, valuable thing in the universe that Christ Shed his blood for me. Yea, God. So what do we see in this brief passage this morning that is yet so packed? Well, God is telling us, if you want to understand and if you want to live a vibrant, healthy, thriving spiritual life, uh, you've got to remember what Christ did for you. You've got to remember what it's like to be lost and separated from God in all good and what Christ did for you on the cross. You'll never appreciate it what you are in Christ, if you don't remember who you were in Christ or what it's like to be outside of Christ. Maybe you did not live a wild lifestyle, but every one of us was completely spiritually bankrupt, lost under the wrath of God, desperate. And that's why we don't need a self-improvement plan. We need a Savior who will die in our place. We need a Savior. Friends, this morning, you've got a Savior available to you. And if you're here and, and this hasn't ever been clear of, of what it means to be a, belong to God, to belong to Christ, this is it. It's not about religion and churchianity and trying hard. It is about a substitute, a Savior who takes your place in His love for you. And friend, if, if you've never trusted this Savior, never received Him, accepted and humbled yourself to admit your sin, and I need a Savior, I beg you, I beg you 
right now, just breathe a prayer. Jesus, save me. Save me. So God tells every one of us, remember who you once were. Now, just in closing, let me clarify for those of us who are believers. Uh, this does not, remember, does not mean just call some facts to mind in a cold, heartless kind of a way. What it means is to remember with feeling, with heart. Let it grip you. Let, let me give you a brief example from the life of Christ. Jesus was at a banquet at Simon, a religious leader's home. This is Luke 7. Those banquets at that time could be quasi-public, and people from the city could, when there was a visiting rabbi or teacher, could, could come in and stand around the walls, listen in, couldn't participate. Well, in Luke 7, this was going on, this dinner, and there was a, one of the people from the public who was standing at the, at the back of the room uh, who had been a prostitute. But Jesus had completely saved her and forgiven her, and she was just overwhelmed with love and gratitude. And she's back there watching this dinner, and she's overwhelmed with gratitude and love. So she's remembering who she once was, not in a cold way, a heartless way, but from the heart. Now, Simon had violated all social norms of the day and not even washed his feet, and she just couldn't handle that anymore, the disrespect of that. And so she has this expensive bottle of perfume, ointment, ointment, and she moves, making a fool of herself to his feet, and she kneels down and starts washing his feet with this expensive ointment because if God gets your heart, you know, you're going to be generous. And tears are flowing, and she feels bad and embarrassed, and she's taking her long hair and kind of wiping them off, and it's just a spectacle. Now, Simon, the religious leader, is over there watching this and is judging both Jesus and the woman. He's thinking to himself, you know, if Jesus was a real prophet, he'd know who this woman is and wouldn't allow that. And, of course, he's condescending and self-righteous about the woman. Now, Jesus, because he's not just man, but he's God, he, he knows what Simon is thinking in his heart. And, and he says, Simon, I got a story for you. And he basically tells this story that two people had a debt. One had a huge debt. One had a small debt. debt. Both were forgiven. And he said to Simon, who loves most, the one who's forgiven little or the one who's forgiven a lot? And Simon, of course, says, well, the one who's forgiven a lot. And he says, that's right, Simon. He who forgives little loves little. And he didn't mean that Simon just had a little bit of sin. Those Pharisees had lots of sin. Self-righteousness at the top of the list. What he meant was Simon was not aware of his great sin, and he did not love much. Now, here's the question I have for you, particularly if you've been a Christian for decades. Are you today more like the woman who had been a prostitute, or are you more like the religious leader who was the Pharisee? Are you going around looking down on other people, or are you just overwhelmed with grateful love for the blood of Jesus? For a Savior like this. I hope, I hope you're like the prostitute and you never get over the cross of Christ. Now, friend, three quick suggestions to help us remember more often, more regularly. One, every day, meet God in the pages of Scripture. I know if you're at Wood's Edge, you hear me say this all the time and you're going to keep hearing me say it all the time because there's no substitute. 
if you live in this book, he, he, Christ is the theme of the book. And you will see who you once were and who Christ has made you all the time. So live in Scripture. Now, if you only uh, hear Scripture on Sunday mornings once a week, maybe once a month, uh, you're not going to have a warm heart towards God. You're not. Live in Scripture. Secondly, become a worshiper. Now, this is what we're really talking about. That prostitute was a worshiper. That's what all this is talking about, a worshiper expressing their love to God in tenderness and intimacy. Love relationship, not religious duty, love relationship. And if you're going to remember, become a worshiper. And don't just sing words, but your heart be a million miles away. So every day in your own time with the Lord, your prayer time, tell the Lord that you love Him, express praise to Him, sing to Him, love Him every day. And then once a week, not once a month, but once a week, gather with God's people and and express your praise and love to the Lord. Become a worshiper. Now, in in a few moments, Colin Bates is going to stand right here, and Jessica is going to stand over here, and Sharita is going to stand there, and the band's going to be there, and Jessica is going to lead us in a song about Lead Me to the Cross. Are are you going to sing that from your heart in love or mindlessly as ritual? I'm a worshiper. Thirdly, the third thing, celebrate communion. Just like the New Testament Christians did, you know, every week. Celebrate because it is all about remembering. And if you go to Wood's Edge, the climax of our service is not the preacher preaching, but the worshipers worshiping in communion. It's after the sermon. In response to the sermon, in response to, to again seeing the glory and the goodness of Jesus, we go to the communion tables, we take the bread, we take the cup, and we don't just quickly take them out of ritual. We pause and slow our hearts down and say, Oh God, thank you again for a Savior who saved me from my sin. Thank you, worshiper. Three simple things. Live in Scripture, become a worshiper, celebrate communion from the heart. Stand with me. Now, friend, if God is tugging on your heart to, to, for the first time ever, to trust a substitute, a Savior, breathe a prayer right now. Jesus, come and save me. I humble myself before you and say, I need a sinner. And if your heart has grown cold, you you know the Lord, but your heart has grown cold, you're trying to fill your life with all kind of other things, then repent and say, oh God, I'm so sorry. May I fall in love with Jesus more. Let that be your prayer. Papa, may we love you more because you first loved us. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.